Well, the passage before us is about contentment. Paul is a content man, despite being in a prison cell, probably in the city of Rome. He, he lived a life that was beleaguered with many troubles and trials that came from his ministry that the Lord had called him to. He was often cold and hungry, weary, sleepless. He was often beaten, often in shipwrecks. Um, he, had, he had many tragic things happen to him, but he counted them as all joy. He rejoiced in his tribulation that he experienced for the kingdom of God. And he did so with confidence that God was his Father. And he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he was serving out his mission. No matter what happened to him, it was all according to what the Lord had ordained. That is the basic secret of Paul's contentment. He is content as he entrusts himself to his Father. You may remember several weeks ago we studied earthly mindedness because Paul brings it up at the end of Philippians chapter 3. There are those who, are, um, who mind earthly things. I think it's chapter 9 or verse 19 of chapter 3. They set their minds on earthly things, these heretics that Paul's dealing with in Philippi and warning the Philippians about. Well, as we, as we studied earthly mindedness, we came upon the name of Jeremiah Burroughs. He wrote a treatise on earthly mindedness back in the 1600s. And after his death, his friends published that treatise for him and they, they put a foreword in there and they described him as a man who was truly heavenly minded. He had his heart set upon heaven and set upon his mission as a minister and a pastor. Now, the men who wrote that foreword were themselves present, many of them at uh, the Westminster Assembly, in which the Westminster Standards were created, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechism. Those men thought extremely highly of Jeremiah Burroughs. Well, his name comes up again for us this week because he wrote another book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The rare jewel of Christian contentment. Now he calls it a rare jewel because of Paul's language here that he has learned a secret. A secret of how to be full and how to be hungry. Of how to both abound and to suffer lack. And because it is a secret, it is something that not everyone knows. Now in Paul's usage of the word secret, it just means something that you need divine revelation in order to know. It doesn't mean that it's, it's a mystery beyond anyone's attaining to. Uh, it is accessible. It's just you wouldn't know how to do it unless God tells you. So God tells us the secret of Christian contentment. And Paul tells us here the secret of his contentment. It's not beyond the reach of those who are in Christ. As a matter of fact, for those who are in Christ, they should be content. Jeremiah Burroughs defines contentment this way. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. 
in every condition because Paul says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. So it applies to all of life. At every juncture of life, the Christian should be in a position, in a disposition of contentment. Well, let's study as we open up this morning, let's study on the word that Paul uses for contentment. It is the Greek word autarkes. And it means, the lexicons say, content, self-sufficiency, having enough. The word indicates independence of external circumstances and often means the state of one who supports himself without the aid, without aid from others. Another commentator says that the word means independence of external circumstances. Another lexicon says it means sufficient for oneself, strong enough or possessing enough enough to need no aid or support, independent of external circumstances, subjectively contented with one's lot, with one's means, though the slenderest. So this contentment is not needing anything from the outside in order to be at peace, in order to be happy. Now, if you'll remember, we just had Paul talking about the peace of God. He told us in verse 7, that the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a result of the command in verse 6 as we sue for it, as we seek God for it. He will give that. And then in verse 9, he tells the Philippians to imitate him with the promise that as they do that, the God of peace will be with you. I think in the context of Philippians, we can say that contentment as Paul uses the word here, has a lot to do with peace. It has a lot to do with enjoying the peace of God because the God of peace is with you. And from that, you are self-sufficient. And we, we need to unpack that a little bit because that's not quite right, but that, that does get us to where we need to go. Let's say a little bit more about the usage of this word in Greek. Thucydides was a historian in, in Greece. And he used this word that Paul uses here. He used it of a city that did not need to import goods. This was a self-sufficient city. <clears throat> in, the, in the Presbyterian church, Presbyterian polity, there are churches that are being planted. And uh, those are called mission churches usually. And then there are also particularized churches. Well, a mission church is a church that needs funding. And they need maybe borrowed elders or borrowed deacons from another church because it's just getting started. It's being planted. But a particularized church, well, that's a church that is distinct now from the church that planted it, from the mother church. It is particular. It is its own body. It doesn't need to borrow elders or deacons. And it doesn't need funding to support itself. It, it supports itself by itself without aid from the presbytery. You may have heard a Christian teacher say, sons leave and daughters are given. As they talk about children in Christian homes growing up, sons are to leave the home and uh, they're playing an away game in the words of one theologian as they go to establish their own home and to seek a wife for themselves. For daughters, it's a little bit different. Daughters are given by their fathers. But I want to talk a little bit about 
son's leaving and what that might have to do with this word, autarkes, being sufficient in oneself. Think about it this way. When a son leaves his parents' house, he is supposed to be self-sufficient. He is supposed to be a provider, providing for his own needs and uh, his family's needs. And that's why the Scripture says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Now if you think about that for a minute, you could say that man is self-sufficient. He's autarkes, right? But, does that mean that he has nothing to do anymore with his parents? No, he's still to honor them. He still loves them. His affections toward them are still warm, even though the seat of his affections is now upon his wife as he's established a new home. He still is loving and affectionate toward his parents. Now the reason I bring this up is because Paul says here that that he is self-sufficient. And we're going to get into Stoicism. Stoicism taught self-sufficiency and this was their word. They, They came up with this word. I don't know if they invented it themselves, but they definitely had a corner on this word. In all of their literature... In, the, in Greek culture, they had a lot to say about autarkes. And their, their concept of being self-sufficient meant that you were able to eradicate affection from yourself. And in that sense, you were emotionally detached, emotionally independent. And the reason I bring up the example of a son leaving and establishing a new household is so that you see that biblical contentment is different from contentment in Stoicism. In biblical contentment, our affections belong to Jesus Christ. They belong to God. But that doesn't mean we hate the creation. That doesn't mean we could care less about it or that we're indifferent toward it. We still delight in the things that God gives us, in the people that God puts in our lives. And Paul's a great example here. Paul here is autarkes. That's what he's saying about himself. He claims that. But doesn't he love the Philippians? We know that he loves them. He he says that they're his beloved. He says that they're his joy and his crown. He delights in these people. He has set his affection upon them, even though his affection truly belongs to Jesus Christ, because he's in Christ. He loves what Jesus Christ loves. And he loves what Christ has put into his life for him to uh, mutually edify for them to mutually edify him. So we should see at the outset that the, the contentment that Paul speaks of here is Christian contentment. It is different from the contentment of Stoicism. But let's build out now some of the teachings of Stoicism so that we can understand what was in the air. That Paul was, when Paul would teach on this word, and claim it for Christ, what did people in the culture have to battle with? What, were, what was their usage of this word that they had to disabuse themselves of in order to understand Christian contentment? Well, this word had the odor of Stoic philosophy, but Paul here uses it and refines it with Christian doctrine. Stoicism, we could say, came about by the philosopher Zeno who lived in the 400s B.C. He taught in a Stoa. 
That was where this uh, philosophy got its name. A stoa was a colonnade. So if you think about Greek architecture, it was like a hall, and along that hall there was a wall, but on the other side of that hall there was a series of pillars, a series of columns. That's a stoa. And because Zeno taught his philosophy from that location, it became to be known as Stoicism from the hall where he taught. Now there are many famous Stoics that you probably have heard their names. Cicero, he was a Roman statesman. Uh, Epictetus, he was a Greek philosopher. Seneca was a philosopher and a statesman. Marcus Aurelius was an emperor of Rome. All of these people were famous Stoics. And uh, some of those people were contemporaries of Christ. Most of them were after Christ. But Zeno was well before Christ, 400 years before Christ. So this philosophy of Stoicism was well established by the time of Christ and of course by the time of Paul. As a matter of fact, uh, Seneca was a contemporary of Paul. He lived about the same time as Paul did. So this philosophy was definitely afoot in a lot of people were either Stoics or Epicureans. So either they, either they embraced the Stoic philosophy, which said you need to live a disciplined life, or they embraced an Epicurean philosophy that said you should just live for the moment, live for all your pleasures. What was the basic belief of Stoicism? Well, I'm going to quote William Barclay, who said, the Stoics rightly believed that contentment did not consist in possessing much but in wanting little. If you want to make a man happy, they said, add not to his possessions, but take away from his desires. Socrates was once asked, who was the wealthiest man? He answered, he who is content with least. For autarkeia is nature's wealth. And that's our word, that word for self-sufficiency. Socrates called that nature's wealth. Well, you can see here that Stoicism laid upon some truth. There was some truth in the fact that you can't make a man content by adding to his possessions, but by regulating his desires. But we want to continue in critiquing Stoicism and understanding how does Paul use this word contentment? He really he steals it from the Stoics and he defines it with Christian doctrine. And we need to understand that. So let's go on now in critiquing Stoicism to say that Stoicism attempts to make a human creature inhuman by denying the creator-creature distinction. God is the creator. We're the creation. We are dependent upon Him. He has made us to need Him so that we're dependent upon Him. He opens His hands and satisfies the desire of every living thing. That includes us. We are not God's. So the Christian position is that only the Lord can truly be autarkes. Only the Lord can truly be self-sufficient. Only God is the one who creates out of nothing. Well, if He creates out of nothing, then He needs nothing. He does not need even creation. He has made all things simply for His glory. Now by extension, if God is the only one who can be self-sufficient, autarkes, then those who He dwells in can also be autarkes from His own fullness. 
Christians can be self-sufficient, but it's really not sufficiency from their own selves, but it's sufficiency from God. William Barclay said that the difference between the Stoics and Paul was that Stoics were self-sufficient, but Paul was God-sufficient. Paul was dependent upon God's own self, not his own self. Really, there was nothing about Paul inwardly of himself that made him content. That's not what he's claiming. That's not the secret here. It's not that he found a way to be satisfied all by his lonesome. He has found a way to be satisfied in Christ. And if you'll look back in Philippians chapter 3, you'll remember there in verses 7 and 8 of Philippians 3 that Paul, Paul has had a reordering of what he considers gain and loss. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him. So Paul is a man found in Christ. He has gained Christ. Christ indwells him. Christ dwells in his heart by faith. And from that indwelling of Jesus within his own heart, from that, Paul is content. So what does self-sufficiency mean for Paul? It's, it's really nothing to do with Paul himself. It's everything to do with Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 16 says of Jesus Christ, and of His fullness have we all received and grace for grace. Jesus Christ has the fullness of deity in Him in bodily form. And from His fullness, we have all received grace. All of us who trust in Him. And not just a little bit of grace, but grace heaped on top of grace. Grace for grace. And it's by the grace of God that a Christian can be content a Christian can be God-sufficient. Sufficient in God's own self. Paul uses this word autarkes again in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. He says there to the Corinthians, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, always having all sufficiency, that's the word autarkes, in all things may be found, excuse me, may abound to every good work. Hear him speak of the grace of God. From his grace, God is able to make you abound in every good work. He's able to make you, therefore, sufficient by his grace. And remember what else Paul learned when he was dealing with the thorn in the flesh. Later in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he addresses that he had asked the Lord three times that the Lord would remove this thorn from his flesh. And what did he hear from the Lord? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for this situation. So the grace of God is what makes Christians content. That is what satisfies us. It's, the secret is not that we find some well within ourselves that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that we can just sit all forlorn and by, and by our lonesome and from... Um, solitary confinement, we have this great wealth within us that we can draw from. No, none of that is true. We have great gain in Christ. Knowing Christ is of surpassing value to us. We are found in Him and He dwells in our hearts by faith. Now, He is a well that is infinite. 
that we may draw from and have grace upon grace, grace stacked on top of grace. But it's not from ourselves. Our sufficiency is only from God. And that is the source of Christian contentment. So you're seeing the Stoics said nothing about someone else dwelling in them. About a person, Jesus Christ, dwelling in them from which they could be self-sufficient. In Stoicism, it was all about disciplining yourself so that you were man enough or woman enough that you could stand against the world and have no need of the world. So it was, it was a very isolating philosophy. And it was a philosophy that led people really to make a God of themselves. Instead of looking to God or to the Lord Jesus Christ to be the one from whom they draw grace and strength, they looked to themselves. What I'd like to get into this morning is how we, we require contentment in all circumstances. And I want to cover that by the two opposites that Paul brings up here in verse, in verse 12. He says that he knows how to live in, pro, in humble means and he knows how to live in prosperity. And a little bit later in that verse, verse 12, he says that he knows how to be filled and how to go hungry, how to have abundance and how to suffer need. So you hear that Paul is talking about two extremes and everything in between. So we want to talk about having contentment under both extremes and everything in between, but we want to address it at each, at each end of the extreme. First, we need to have contentment in adversity. And second, we need to have contentment in prosperity. Well, Paul was an example of Christian contentment. He modeled it. We have already said that uh, he, he suffered so much lack. Paul was often hungry and sleepy, sleepless, cold and tired. Uh, he, he was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was stoned. All of these things came upon him. And what we see about him is that when he suffered for Christ, he still rejoiced. When he and Silas were beaten in the Philippian jail, the, the same places to what he's written this letter, he and Silas were singing after they had been beaten. So we see that he demonstrated contentment in the worst of adversities, in the worst of situations. Now Paul also, we see, was content with regard to money. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 17, he says that he did not make a gain of the Philippian or the Corinthians by himself or anyone that he sent to them, whether Titus or anyone else. He did not profit off of the Corinthians. He was not guilty of being greedy for filthy lucre. He even forwent rights that belonged to him. So he demonstrated over and again that he was not in ministry for his own enrichment or for his own advantage. William Hendrickson says about Paul that the apostle indeed knew what it meant to be reduced to such straitened circumstances. He knew what was meant by hunger, thirst, fasting, cold, nakedness, physical suffering, mental torture, persecution, etc. He had suffered from lack of such comforts as many other people would have considered necessities. So what you call a necessity, Paul would call a luxury because he did without it all the time. 
This was his contentment in adversity. Now again, I'll say that in verse 9, Paul says to the Philippians, they're supposed to imitate him. Paul Paul knows himself to be an example of contentment. That's why he is speaking here in these verses we've read this morning. Verses 10 through 13, he speaks of what he has been discipled in. He has learned a secret of being content, whether in adversity or in prosperity. So his example is worth following. And when we look at Paul's life, we see we see not a, a blissful life where there were no troubles or concerns, but we see a life that was, that was beleaguered, a life that was uh, always haunted with some sort of lack or trouble or lurking danger. And yet through all these things, Paul demonstrated contentment. Paul commands contentment to all of God's people. He potentially wrote Hebrews chapter 13, uh, perhaps he didn't. Perhaps it was written by Apollos or uh, by some other person. But uh, nevertheless, some people ascribe it to Paul. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Let your character be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Let's pause on this for a minute and note again the difference between Stoicism and its use of the word self-sufficiency and the Christian doctrine of contentment or self-sufficiency. The Christian is again God-sufficient, not self-sufficient. When Paul says here, be content, or perhaps it's not Paul, when whoever it is that wrote Hebrews says, be content and let your character be free of covetousness. The very next thing that this writer says is that the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The reason a Christian can be content is because the Lord stands by your side. The Lord is with you. That's why you can be content. Your character must be free from covetousness because the Lord has made you a promise. And that promise is in verse 6. You can boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The Stoics would not say this. The Stoics would say, you are to just turn inward and dig into yourself, and from your own resiliency, which you're to develop as a callous, from that, from you and yourself alone, you are to gain a hardness in your approach toward the world that can weather any difficulties. So you see how different Stoicism was from Christian contentment. Well, now definitely Paul wrote 1 Timothy. In verses four, in chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, he begins describing godliness. Now listen to how he, how he describes it. He says to Timothy, But refuse profane and old wise fables, and exercise yourself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profits little, But godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So he's commending godliness right now. So far we've not come to contentment. We'll come to that in just a minute. But so far he is defining godliness as something that is great gain both in this life and in the life to come. However much you care about physical exercise, you should care so much more about godliness because it profits so much more. 
Now he adds a comment later in this same letter to first in to Timothy in First Timothy chapter six. He here is he's beginning by describing false teachers, and he picks up in verse five and he says that these false teachers have perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and are destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw yourself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So here he further comments upon godliness. What kind of godliness profits? The kind of godliness that has right there with it contentment. That is the godliness that is a godliness that profits you and is a godliness of contentment and power. Now he goes on to explain this. Verse 7 of 1 Timothy 6. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, clothing, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So Paul here warns those who would be covetous after riches. He says essentially what David says in Psalm chapter 16. The sorrows of those that have bartered for another God shall be multiplied. Covetousness is a sin of idolatry. It is making a God of money or of wherewithal. And it is not godliness. It's the opposite of godliness. It is ungodliness. And it is a great temptation even to godly people. Paul here says, some people who appeared to be in the faith have pierced themselves through with many sorrows because they were not content in adversity, essentially. They craved greedily after riches. Remember in our reading this morning of Numbers 11, the people there craved greedily after meat. They were tired of this bread of heaven. They were tired of angels' food, this manna that came down from heaven. Month after month and year after year, they had eaten it. And so they complained and they wanted meat. So God says, okay, you'll have meat. Uh, You'll have meat for a full month. And as they were eating it, as it was between their teeth that they were chewing it, the Lord sent a, a, a plague among them that destroyed those on the outskirts of the camp. All those that coveted greedily were destroyed. That's what happens to people, even covenant people, that's what happens to people who do not content themselves, even in adversity. They are pierced through with many sorrows. And they fall into many foolish and hurtful lusts that drown men in destruction and perdition. And this covetousness, this idolatry that is, as Paul defines it, it doesn't stand by itself as a sin all by its lonesome, but it carries with it a pack of sins. It's According to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the love of money is the root of all evil. And from it, people have even departed from the faith. So we have to be careful and guard our lives that we not covet and that our character be free from covetousness. We should be content people even in adversity. Now this is a challenge. This is very difficult for us. And some of the things that we experience in this life 
uh, in one of the communities that I've been a part of, there was a family who had twin boys. And these boys uh, grew up uh, into their um, early adolescence. And then one of them, I think both of them were out skateboarding, and, and one of them slipped off of his skateboard. And I suppose he didn't have a helmet on, but uh, in his fall, he became very disabled. Uh, he retained a lot of his physical abilities. He lost coordination, but a lot of his physical abilities he kept, but he was very compromised mentally. Um, and this was very sad for this family to deal with. And, and uh, what, what a challenge to be raising up these boys and to have had them many years and to have so much uh, joy in them and then to see of one of them suffer such great disability and such great loss. Well, what happened in this family? Uh, the father continued in the faith. He continued uh, worshiping uh, with the body of believers, but the mother became detached. I think that she was occasionally present for worship, but she was detached because of this adversity, because of her bitterness in this adversity. And I was a part of a private conversation where concern for this family came up and the pastor of this family said, you know what I think it is? I think that, we'll call her Jane, I think Jane has never come to the point of saying, blessed be the name of the Lord in her adversity, in this adversity that has befallen her family. Well, that is what is required of us in any adversity. We must be able to say, like Job, uh, he says in Job 121, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, Job said that after losing his family, that is, his sons and daughters, after losing his health, after losing his wealth, and his wife was even turning on his contentment that he yet had in God. And he was yet able to say from, from those circumstances in such grave adversity, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, this is, this is a definition of Christian contentment. To be able to bless the Lord from any adversity. And it is hard for us because the flesh, the flesh will not stand for it. The flesh is aggrieved by the loss. The flesh can only see the adversity. Uh, as as um, Jeremiah Burroughs said, wicked men wonder that their sufferings are so great. Godly men wonder that their sufferings are so little. And so that is men that are fleshly, people that are fleshly, think that they should have a claim to everything, to all luxury. Why should they have to suffer any adversity? Because they think so highly of themselves and what they deserve because of that they can never be content. And they'll never bless the Lord in an adversity. But godly people will understand the Lord's mercy and will bless Him at all times. I remember back when, back when this story uh, was told to me, back when I was experiencing this story in that community, I remember tucking that away. I remember telling myself, when I come into adversity, that's all I must do. I, ha- I have to just say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And it was sort of, to me, it was like the staples button. That was easy. 
that you, as long as you could say that, that you would be okay. And then, a little later in my life, I experienced things that are still to this day unspeakably difficult to describe and to talk about. And it was extremely hard for me to say, and more so to feel, blessed be the name of the Lord. And many of you, I'm sure, have experienced that or will experience that. But that is Christian contentment. That is required of the Christian. In whatsoever state you're in, it does not matter the adversity. It does not matter how deeply you think you've drunk of sorrow. You must bless the name of the Lord in your adversity. This is what Paul expects. And Paul was a model of bearing up well under adversity. Now I want to, as we apply this, I want to talk more about how the Stoics dealt with adversity. They had self-sufficiency. What did that self-sufficiency look like? Well, for them, it was apathy. Apathy was a virtue to the Stoics. As a matter of fact, we get our word apathy from the Greeks. And they, they talked about this word as being the word that will get you through all of your troubles. Um, it is a rejection of feeling. That is the word ap- what, what the word apathy means. And according to the Stoics, they attempted to eliminate desire and human emotions. Now if you listen to this, Epictetus, whose name came up earlier, the great Stoic philosopher, Epictetus will show you what Stoic philosophy does with adversity. So listen to this. He says, begin with a cup or a household utensil. If it breaks, say, I don't care. Go on to a horse or a pet dog. If anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Uh, Go on to yourself. And if you are hurt or injured in any way, say, I don't care. If you go on long enough and if you try hard enough, you will come to a stage when you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. Now, doesn't that sound like a great way to live? Doesn't that sound like a lovely philosophy and all sarcasm? I mean, how, how heinous that that is the way the Stoics propose to deal with troubles. Apathy. Just say, I don't care. You see how inhuman this is. It denies emotions that God gave us. God gives us sorrow. And God gives us joy. And He calls us to express these in godly contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs said, only grace teaches us how to mix sorrow and joy in godly contentment. The grace of God will content you so that you can mingle together sorrow and joy. Not like the Stoics who had to become inhuman, which is impossible. But they, this, is a, this is a way in which they worshipped themselves. They attempted to be transhuman and to escape their creatureliness, which was impossible. T.R. Glover, a British author, said... The Stoics made of the heart a desert and called it peace. Well, how do you like that religion? Make the heart a desert and then call it peace. Not so Paul. Uh, Professor Edie says about Paul, 
He felt what want was and keenly felt it, and therefore he gladly accepted of relief and rejoiced in all such manifestations of Christian sympathy. Nor was he self-sufficient in the ordinary or the common sense of the term. It was no egoistic delusion that upheld him, nor did he ever invoke the storm to show that he could brave it. But his mind calmly bowed to the will of God in every condition in which he was placed. For that wondrous equanimity and cheerfulness which excelled the stolid, stubborn endurance ascribed to heathen stoicism gave him mastery over circumstances. He felt the evil, but surmounted it, a purer triumph than with a petrified heart to be unconscious of it. So you see how much better godly contentment is. We get to stay human. We get to still experience our emotions, but now they're regulated by Jesus Christ who dwells in us and His grace which is poured out upon us. From His fullness of grace, we have received grace stacked on top of grace. And it's for that reason, Jeremiah Burroughs said that Christian people are the most satisfied of all. We are the most satisfied of all people because of what we have in Christ. Jeremy Taylor advised, he was a a pastor in Britain, uh, I think in the 1800s, and he said, if you will secure a contented spirit, you must measure not your fortunes by your desire, that is, be governed by your needs, not by your fancy. So we should say that Christian people should, should judge how God is dealing with them by what we need and, by, and not by luxury. Paul says, if we have food and clothing, let's be content with that. God will take care of our needs. He'll give to us everything that we need. And we should not judge His kindness to us by luxuries. You'll never be satisfied that way. If you measure, if you, if you define contentment by adding to your possessions, you'll never be satisfied. But the Lord is enough to satisfy His people. David says in Psalm 4, verses 6-7, through Many are saying, Who will show us any good? Lift up the light of Your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. God is able to do that for us. Maybe there's not much grain. Maybe there's no new wine. But God can put more joy in our hearts than when those things are abundant. He can make us to have a continual feast. So we need to measure our living by His wisdom. Proverbs 15 verse 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. So we should value whatever little that we have and be content with it because with the fear of the Lord and the true knowledge of God, this is true riches because we are content in God alone. Well, I want to say that we're not going to be able to make it to the the point about contentment through prosperity. Perhaps we'll be able to cover that in a future sermon. Uh, But for today, I want to wrap up with us again going back to what Paul taught about Christian contentment. He said there is a secret to be learned. And that secret, as we have seen this morning, that secret has nothing to do with you digging down within yourself into your own resources. It has everything to do with depending upon Christ and His infinite resources. 
He is the one that has all fullness. You have emptiness. We are all empty vessels. But Christ is full. And when Christ indwells us, we participate in His benefits and we share from His own fullness. He pours out His grace upon us and fills our hearts with joy. Even if we're in adversity, there is a joy there that is more than when grain and new wine abound. Matthew Henry says, We have an account here of Paul's learning, not that which he got at the feet of Gamaliel, but that which he got at the feet of Christ. Remember, Gamaliel was Paul's instructor in Torah. He learned many things from Gamaliel. But that's not the sort of contentment that Paul is describing here. It's not something that he got from another human. It's something that he got from Christ Himself. Very God and very man. So this is a lesson that he learned from the feet of Christ. And it's a secret that is revealed in Christ. Christ is this secret of Christian contentment. If we want to have that quiet frame of heart that comes from the grace of God, it only comes from Christ dwelling within us. Giving to us peace as the God of peace. Let's pray to the Lord. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for the contentment that we can have in Christ. And we ask that we would be those who manifest it continually. Truly, Father, contentment is a rare jewel among Christians. And we ask that we would be a body of believers that showcase this rare jewel, whether in adversity or prosperity, may it shine forth as a treasure that we have by Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. We ask that You would grant this because of Your grace, the grace of Jesus Christ which You have promised to us from His fullness. In His name, Amen. Would you please stand to worship the Lord with your red hymnals. The hymn is number 559. 559, Father, I know that all my life. 559.